Hello and welcome back. It's Benjamin Rose and myself, Gedalia Gutentag, with Mishmachas Homefront, a wide-angle view of Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, Gedalia. Usually we uh, end on a positive note. Today we'll try to begin on a positive note because there is more talk about the hostages maybe coming out. There's a deal in the works. We don't know exactly what form it'll take yet and whether it will uh, be agreed to by all the parties involved, but the outline, as we've heard, is that there would be a approximately six-week ceasefire. And during that period of time, at least during the first month, so a certain amount of hostages would be released every day. And also a corresponding, or I shouldn't say corresponding, I should say a disproportionate number of terrorists that Israel is holding will be released. So that's actually good news. And... Then they're also talking about possibly Israel repositioning their troops. Hamas has a lot of demands. They'd like Israel to get out of Gaza. They'd like to start reconstructing the Gaza Strip and building back what's been destroyed. And overall, it would be, again, a very positive deal. It would be great to get, uh, all of, to, get to the bulk of the hostages out, if not all of them. But the question is, is the price going to be too much for Israel to pay? And that's what's being debated right now. And the second question is, will Hamas really accept it? So that's where we are right now. Yeah, I mean, so obviously that's good news. And the last hostage deal was after 50 days. And now this is well over 100. And it's the conditions these people, poor people are experiencing. And we have, you know, everyone's having captives. And we cannot imagine what they're going through. That said, the country in general is undoubtedly going to pay a price. Over here, it's going to be terribly humiliating to see again. Hamas is going to do their pallywood once again, drugging the captives and getting them to wave cheerfully at them and for the cameras. Although at this stage, narratives on both sides, the pro and Israel, anti Israel side, are now so set. I don't think these things make a difference. But again, it's still humiliating to see that these bandits who are living underground in their caves in Gaza have the upper hand over us. And I think another thing we're going to see is the anguish debate over the what quality terrorists, that's what they're talking about, not just vast numbers, hundreds and hundreds of terrorists, but how much blood are they going to have on their hands the ones they release is going to be, and undoubtedly killers are going to be out, those who have killed and those who will try and kill again. We've seen this again and again. And a couple of big questions are going to be, Benjamin, the politics, will the coalition hold together under the right wing, Smotrich, Bank of do not want to agree. They did not want the deal last time. They've hardened their position and they said they won't vote for it this time. Lapid has now said he will potentially come in and act as a to, to, to save the coalition to force it through. And the last question is going to be, will we be able to restart? Benjamin, it was a 10-day, I think, ceasefire last time. Eventually, it was Hamas that destroyed the ceasefire and had any hope of trading more captives. And six weeks is an eternity, right? They say a week's a long time in politics. Well, six weeks is an eternity. It's almost like a second war. So the question, Benjamin, I think it's an open, legitimate question. Bibi Netanyahu has got to be said again and again, we're going to go and destroy Hamas. This war is far from over. And I would add to that the messaging coming out from the IDF saying that they expect the war will continue right through 2024, possibly into 2025. All of that is intended to reassure Israel and tell Hamas and the world that we're just going to start fighting again after however long this is. Benyama, do you believe this is possible to restart? Yudalia, I was somewhat surprised even the last time that we restarted the war. If you recall, we discussed it on the podcast, and I was in the minority at the time of those who felt that the war would not resume, and it certainly did. So I can't tell you that my analysis or the way I thought it would unfold was correct then. But this time, I'm almost positive that if we go to a six-week ceasefire, that the war is over for a variety of reasons. Number one, what are you going to do with the troops during that uh, six-week period? 
Uh, already, a lot of IDF soldiers are being repositioned. Brigades have been pulled out of Gaza. There's probably only one active brigade that's still operating in Gaza. Once everybody is either out or sitting in place, which is very dangerous, by the way, for that period of time, I don't see how you're going to restart. Secondly, if you take a look at when the six weeks might start, let's say in another week or so, and when it would end towards the middle or the end of March, you're starting to get deeper into the U.S. presidential race. And how likely is it that Joe Biden, who is under a lot of pressure from the progressive Democrats, is going to give a wink and a nod so that Israel can continue the battle? And I think from uh, the third point of view, even domestically, forget about uh, American politics, there's a lot of uh, Israeli uh, politicians who've been chomping at the bit now for a long time to take on Benjamin Netanyahu, whether it's inside his party or whether it's outside the party. The actus that we've had in Eretz Israel is still solid among the rank and file, I believe, but among the politicians, it's fractured. And if you give a six-week ceasefire, then that's going to be six weeks of all sorts of intensive political maneuvering among the oppositions of the current coalition, of the opponents of Benjamin Netanyahu. And I don't see the government holding during that period of time. I think being able to throw into that mix one more variable is, will there be war in the North? We are businesses. We've all seen the leaked documents and stuff from the government urging people, businesses to prepare and government departments to ensure they can operate without power for three days. And that is because they assume, the IDF assumes that Hezbollah would fire between four to 5,000 missiles, many of them accurate. In other words, the way to fire targeted at Israel, the critical infrastructure will be so great that all of the Iron Dome, all the air defenses will be operating just to protect the military bases, et cetera, and that critical infrastructure. And therefore, cities will be, in many, many cases, defenseless. We have to look at the situation in the eye. And it's clear the IDF is far too small for a two-front war. That is not my opinion. It's like Brick, who is a former general, who warned again and again for years about the shrinking size of the IDF, the inability to take on tunnels, etc. He was an old soldier who was proved correct. And I saw in a recent interview in which he said, yes, we can't take on a second front. So therefore, I think this is all leading to the winding down of the war in that case, especially if we start in the North. But I want to talk a little bit about the Americans, but I'd just like to say that I think we will be surprised again in that this is not about to go back to the status quo ante of the October 6th. It's not going to happen simply because the consensus in Israeli society, left to right, is that we have to do something different about the Palestinians. We cannot live like this. And so soldiers will stay in Gaza. They will at a moment's notice, be triggered raids that could become very heavy raids and very heavy fighting. There will be a drawdown of troops, but they're not getting this Gaza Strip back in a hurry. Well, that's what's clear, Benjamin. We'll have to see how it all plays out. There was a part of me that has been thinking that maybe perhaps this is all uh, misdirection and uh, all the talk about withdrawing from Gaza or repositioning from Gaza is to try to make people think that we're winding things down when really we're just going to transfer a lot of our military power up north and start working this time against Hezbollah in Lebanon. That remains to be seen. I think normally it would have been possible, but when you take a look at some of the rhetoric that's coming out of the Biden administration, when you take a look at Antony Blinken suggesting that, again, this is not he himself, but the sources who are being quoted in his name and he in top-line media outlets such as Axios, where they have very good contacts, and saying that the U.S. is considering the possibility of agreeing to a quote-unquote demilitarized Palestinian state, then it doesn't give me any hope that they're really looking for Israel to start another front anyplace anytime soon. And 
I know that we were talking earlier before we went on about Thomas Friedman's article today in the New York Times, and I know you have some thoughts about what Friedman suggested about what the so-called Biden doctrine in the Middle East should be. Yeah, I think it's worth sharing, firstly, that it's pretty clear at this point that this administration has two major avenues for messaging. The friendly media outlets who basically act as a mouthpiece for trial balloons and for non-trial balloons, you know, to get messaging out. It seems to be that the State Department Blinken team used the Wall Street Journal, a reporting team for that. It just happens, to, we've seen that quite a few times. And Tom Friedman, opinion commentator in the New York Times, by virtue of his close relationship with Biden, is somewhat of a mouthpiece for him. He starts his piece saying that, from my reporting, I can see the emergence of a three-part Biden doctrine. His reporting is, I think, a nice way of saying a Biden doctrine. He said, as I'm terming the convergence of strategic thinking and planning that my reporting has picked up, which is a very nice way of saying that I got on the phone to Uncle Joe and we had a good old chinwag. So, I mean, that's where I read it anyway, whether it happened directly in that form or not. But he says basically the three parts of this emerging Biden doctrine, capital B, capital D, which is that we suddenly realize that a strong, we have to have a strong and resolute stand against Iran, including a robust military retaliation against Iran proxies and agents in the region in response to killing its real soldiers, etc. Secondly, beyond all the exchange and talks on this, and let's just get the outline. Second track would be an unprecedented U.S. diplomatic initiative to promote a Palestinian state now, and that is hyphen capital N capital O capital W, which is the equivalent to we want Mashiach now. It would involve some form of U.S. recognition of a demilitarized Palestinian state. Only once, Palestinians had developed a set of defined credible institutions security capabilities to ensure this state was viable, can never threaten Israel. Remarkable how they're going to achieve all of that. And they're going to do that by consulting experts inside and outside the U.S. government about different forms of this recognition of Palestinian state to, this might take. On the third track, and this is important, we have vastly expanded U.S. security alliances with Saudi Arabia, which should involve U.S.-Saudi normalization with Israel, if Israel recognizes again, demilitarized Palestinian state led by a transformed Palestinian authority. And when you read this, Benyamin, you think to yourself, there's a sense of messianic belief flooding once again through these people. Before we dive and nitpick the actual, whether any of that makes sense, I think it was Boogie Alon, Moshe Boogie Alon, former defense minister, chief of staff, who said a few years ago, I think it was about John Kerry, before he was the climate czar, he was the Secretary of State under Obama. He decried what he called Kerry's messianic search for, I think he said messianism or solutionism or messianic solutionism or whatever it was. And these people really believe that it's incredible. As soon as they got a legacy to burnish Benjamin, right, it's suddenly they pull it out again. It's the cold thin sense of anyone can come and eat and suck from this high table of Middle East peace. In every generation, we know what they try and destroy us. And in every generation, our friends, right? try and save us from ourselves by coming out with Middle Eastern peace. I'm just left to admire the beauty of this thing once again. Here we are with another proposed all-purpose solution. What do you think of it, Binyamin? Vidalia, I'm going to point our listeners to my column in the magazine this week, The Rose Report. The last segment was bringing down the many occasions on which in the last 75 or more years that the Arab side has been the one to reject any two-state solution and any attempt at making peace with Israel. None of this had to do with the Benjamin Netanyahu being intransigent or being in a government with right-wing people. It's the Arabs that have been rejectionists all along, not Israel. And I don't see any U.S. realization or recognition of that and a strategy for how they're going to counter that. That's point number one. Point number two, 
What's all this talk about a demiller tri-state? What exactly does that mean? The IDF has been operating now for almost four months in Gaza. And what have we done to demilitarize Gaza? Maybe we've gotten to 20% of the tunnels. Maybe we've killed 30% of their terrorists. Correct. It's a joke. Lots and lots of weapons. But to demilitarize, and again, here we have our army operating unimpeded, and we haven't demilitarized Gaza. So who's going to demilitarize the West Bank? Come on. It's not happening. There is no such thing as a demilitarized Palestinian state. It would be like going to America and telling, what, there's about 150 million gun owners in America and going to them and saying, hey, guys, you want to voluntarily give up your arms? No way. It's not going to happen. And no one's going to force them to do it. So this idea of a demilitarized Palestinian state is pure fantasy. And Israel needs to really put that to rest. And they need to be as strong as I was just in the last minute in describing that. Number three, regarding Saudi Arabia, I'm all for Israel making some sort of peace or normalization with Saudi Arabia. And I think so is Saudi Arabia. But what we have to understand is that it's more important for Saudi Arabia to make peace with Israel than it is for Israel to make peace with Saudi Arabia. They have more to gain than we do because they're a country with an economy that's built mostly on oil. And not that I think that the world is going to get to all electric cars in 2030 or 2035. Like I think that's another fantasy. But on the other hand, MBS, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, understands that uh, oil is the thing of the past and that he can't rely on that to propel his economy in the future. And he's trying to modernize. He wants to get more tourism. He wants to have more high tech. And uh, if Israel and the U.S. can help him succeed, then you know I see no reason why not. But you know, I'm sitting here in my home in Yerushalayim as an average Haredi citizen of Israel. And I'm wondering, like, okay, well, what's in it for me? I don't fly to the Far East, so it's not like being able to fly over Saudi Arabia and say four hours on a flight to India or Hong Kong is going to make a big difference to me. As far as tourism is concerned, I'm looking forward to the day when we can get around in Eretz Yisrael again, and I can go back to Nari and go back to the Amamelach and the places that I like to go to. You're, there. you're not I mean, running Saudi up to Arabia is not high in my tourist destination, mm-hmm. and I think we have to realize that for the average Israeli. Yes, it's nice to have peace. It's nice to feel accepted. But someone has to sell me on the tangible benefits to me of peace with Saudi Arabia. I like the idea. But as far as uh, Thomas Friedman suggested about the U.S. having a defense alliance with Saudi Arabia, I don't see it. uh, I don't see it washing. Who in the Democratic Party is going to support the U.S. going to war for Saudi Arabia? Who in uh, even the Republican Party is going to support that at this stage? They're also isolationists. So Correct. Again, to me, it's all fantasy. It's all talk. Nobody's really thought about the reality and what things are really like here in the Middle East. I think it's such an important piece in general, all this building movement. I'd just like to go into a couple more points there, because when I say it's a building movement, what I mean is that it to, to force Israel and a narrative developing. You're hearing stuff, Tom Friedman, New York Times, etc., from the by the mouthpiece. But we've also got stuff, and you saw coming out from the State Department stuff in the Wall Street Journal. Joining them is a British hopeful, another hopeful of legacy built. Someone wants a legacy again. And I wrote on my family WhatsApp group when David Cameron, he's now Lord David Cameron, former prime minister who went down in flames over Brexit. And somebody flagged this on my family WhatsApp group. And I wrote the, beware the disgraced or fallen politician who spies a second chance building a legacy. That's clearly what this is about. He's come along and he said in a speech, not through not through the good offices of a journalist announcing himself, he said, 
we are not allies of examining the issues of recognizing Palestinian states, including the UN. This could be one of the things that will help make the process irreversible. And now that is a politer way of saying what a big EU leader said last week, in which we're actually going to force Israel's hand to make peace. So in other words, to make it irreversible, there's a building international conversation going up behind the scenes between decision makers, between the kind of David Cameron's of the world, who's officially a conservative, but being British conservative, he means he's kind of like squishy centrist, left in some ways, and having the State Department and Biden team, and you're having the Europeans, there's a building alliance. But you know, it's very, very worrying. We can sit here and we can poke holes in it. But at the end of the day, these people are in power and it's very, very worrying that this is happening. I want to call your attention to something that comes across to me as really absurd in this Tom Friedman piece about the thinking about Iran. Because this, I know for sure, October the 7th is forcing a fundamental rethinking about the Middle East within the Biden administration. Good. Given the barbaric Islamic Hamas attack on Israel, the massive Israeli retaliation against Hamas has killed thousands of innocent Palestinians. That's quintessential Biden nonsense. We didn't kill them, Hamas killed them. And then he says the inability of Israel's right-wing government to articulate any plan for governing Gaza the day after. And then he says that his plan- They have articulated a plan. It's just the Americans don't like the plan. The plan is for Israel to remain in Gaza. There's even uh, been some talk in some circles about uh, Jews resettling the Gaza Strip. And again, these are all things that nobody around the world wants to hear. But to say that we haven't articulated a plan is not true. Well, I mean, on that, I would take issue with the right. There has been, a, yes, there has been a, I think letting the Smotrichs and Ben Gavir of the world lead the charge to resettle Gaza, that as a defining kind of possibility within the government's thing, I think is a total blind alley. I don't think there's a majority of Israelis would go for that. I think it's not a good thing. I don't think we should be mixing up settlements. And again, this is historically Eretz Israel, but this is not Mashiach's time. We do not want to be governing these people. We want to be controlling their military ability to make war with us. But I personally do not want to have to see people back there stuck in between North and South Gaza, getting bombs and rockets thrown at them every day. I don't think it's worth it. But anyway, I just like to draw your attention to where he goes with Iran. He says, the rethinking underway signals an awareness that we can no longer allow Iran to try to drive us out of the region, Israel into extinction, and our Arab allies into intimidation through proxy, while Tehran blithely sits back and pays no price. And you know, when I say that, I say, good morning, Ani, where have you been? You know, where, how stupid, how thick-headed can you be? This has been their game for years, and yet for years you tried one blind alley after another trying to make her Iran deal. Give the reward them with tens and tens of billions of dollars, and then to resuscitate the dead Iran deal. And then you're saying, "Then there was an attack. All these proxies have teeth. They're terrible. We can't deal with them." This is a foreign policy absolutely lacking cohesion, and the foreign policy of infants. These people have not got their feet on the ground. They're very clever. Some are led by very clever people with no connection to reality here. I'm not impressed at all. I think it's possible to say we're seeing. A development of very worrying and broad front against which any Israeli government is going to struggle to push back. I think we're going to have to hope that whether Bibi stays in power or whoever it is, we will have the guts to stand up and say, we have our war aims and we're going to keep them. But one thing we're not going to accept is this messianism that says we're going to have a state and this is the solution. No, we've got to control Gaza's foreign policy. We have to be able to go in at will and to bomb at will. And that's it as far as I'm concerned. I would say to that, that U.S. policy with Iran has been faulty ever since uh, the Jimmy Carter era back in the late 1970s, when instead of propping up the Shah of Iran against uh, popular protests, and this was something that the U.S. could have done in those days because we did prop up uh, even dictators in other parts of the world, uh, Carter led 
uh, the Iranian mullahs take over. Not that the Shah was such a nice guy, but at least the Shah was on America's side and he also had a relationship with Israel. And ever since the Islamic government took over in Iran, it's been going downhill ever since. And it's now 44 years and counting. So I don't trust the U.S. to do the right thing in Iran. I still think that they want to empower Iran, at least the Biden administration does. And any military action they'll take against Iran will be a slap in the wrist compared to the knockout punch that really needs to be delivered. So, Benjamin, I think you're of the John Bolton School of Foreign Policy when it comes to Iran. John Bolton makes an appearance in this week's Mishpacha. Go out in your droves. That's what I'd say. And in just on the concluding, Benjamin, we have a conclude on a kind of sometimes a good note. We've got a before Shabbos. So I'd like to just call out a salute to certain soldiers. I've noticed that the last few months, there's the people from Pikuda Orof, who are the home front. They're not combat soldiers. They're there in uniform, standing with their antiquated Vietnam era M16s slung very heavily over the shoulder. And these people nowadays, for months, especially here in Beit Shemesh, has been no rocket attacks to talk of, or even sirens. And yet these people have still posted there outside the schools, standing there, rain or shine, mostly at these days, rain. It's far from a glamorous job. And I don't know who these people are, but they are there outside the schools doing the mission because that's what they've been told to do. And because the army feels need for people around still in case, I suppose, they are rocket attacks. And so I would say these are the unsung heroes. You know who you are. I know who you are. And I want to salute you and say thank you for being there for us, even though you do get rained on, no one's bringing you pizza anymore. But for me, at least, and from this very eminent platform, we'd like to say thank you to the home front soldiers. Wish you, Binyamin, and all the listeners a good and healthy Shabbos.